The war in Vietnam spanned the course of 20 years. At its peak in 1968, the United States was averaging 46 soldier deaths per day. At home, conversations about the war tore the country apart. Many Americans detested the war and did their part in speaking out, none more so than students on college campuses. Today, we'll tell the story of Kent State, looking at the protests that occurred in the spring of 1970, how the government reacted, and the bloodshed that brought it all to an end. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you're a fan of our very infrequent history lesson shows, stick around, because when Professor Mike's class is in session, you better fucking pay attention. This is Necronomapod. Is off tonight. I'm David Brinkley, NBC News. Kent State University in Ohio has had campus violence for three nights, causing the National Guard to be called in, and today the Guardsmen open fire on the students, killing four of them, two young men and two young women. Three were shot in the chest and one in the head. A dozen or more others were wounded, some by gunfire and some by bayonets. The university is closed and all faculty and students have been sent home. The students were protesting the American invasion of Cambodia. The National Guard was called in over the weekend by Ohio Governor James Rhodes. Today, when 1,500 students started an anti-war... So shortly after the incident that we're going to be discussing tonight, David Crosby from uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young handed his bandmate Neil Young a copy of uh, the recent Life magazine that contained pics from this tragedy we're going to talk about. So Neil took off for a few hours, wrote the song Ohio that we just heard a part of there and brought it back to everyone in Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. They immediately recorded it in a couple takes, uh, rushed it out as a single within three weeks of the event. It was everywhere and became sort of a anthem of the anti-war movement you'll notice uh, i'm starting to show here tonight because our beloved mike namapod is in the driver's seat tonight narrating this episode uh you got promoted to like quarterback of the show like you get to run things about here. that yeah. it's pretty fun over here let's do whatever i want right. <laughs> you can interrupt the story as many times as you want to talk about whatever rate your favorite cheeseburgers is that is that what you do over here well sometimes that's what <laughs> well, wendy's triple uh, burger <laughs> Just whenever it's you just, just wide open, whatever is on my mind, right? Exactly. Ask Ian. He just tries to get through a poor par- or a paragraph, and the poor guy can't even do it. 
It's like, yeah, but Taco Bell switched their mild sauce recently, I think. <laughs> Well, if I have carte blanche here, Ian, did you watch that movie, The Sadness, yet? The Taiwanese uh, pseudo-zombie horror movie? I have not. It is fucking amazing. One of the best horror movies I've seen in a long time. That's the one that you said had all the good kills in it? Oh, my God. It's fantastic. So the Taiwanese got it right. They did. Excellent. I was going to watch it, but then I ended up watching that new documentary on Netflix instead. What's that? About the, uh, the fertilization doctor that just started impregnating massive amounts of women with his own he's like sperm. genghis khan genghis khan like yeah. the whole world can trace their lineage back to this one guy it's super fucked up is that here in the states yeah it was in indiana hmm. good old indiana yeah like the indianapolis area interesting it's, i recommend it it's a good one all right i recommend the sadness excellent movie available on shutter can't remember the name of the documentary it's very, called like it's our helpful our father or something <laughs> like that it's it's really fucked up if only there was like a, a, a something you can go to online to like yeah. search up the name of something maybe you should invent it find it yeah <laughs> ask jeeves perhaps <laughs> look here jeeves what's this documentary i've been hearing so much about on the netflix question mark <laughs> wasn't jeeves like wearing a tuxedo and Absolutely. stuff on the front page yeah <laughs> It's all fancy. I remember in grade school when we were first <laughs> learning how to use computers, that's what we were taught to use was Ask Jeeves. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I don't know. I don't remember. Early, mid, mid 90s, maybe 94, mm -hmm. 95, 96-ish. I don't know why Ask Jeeves, maybe that was the, the big one at the time. I don't he know. He could have won out. Who knows? That would have been a different world right now. Ask Jeeves would have ruled the world. Nobody would ever have to listen to our show because they could just ask Jeeves and then get all the information. <laughs> right? Ask Jeeves, what was this whole Kent State shooting all about? Yeah, and fucking I'm out of business. <laughs> all right, Mike, take it away. Let's hear about this uh, interesting piece of history that local to us. About what, 45 minutes from here? It is. Ish. Uh, I went out there today, 48 minutes. Look uh, at you doing another journalism. I did a journalism. God damn, hell. I did a last minute uh, research. Just went out there today to uh, take a look at the campus and some of the memorials, and they have a little museum out there. Um, learned a few things actually that I sprinkled into my, my notes over here that we'll, mm. we'll talk about today. Nice. I learned something on the news today too, that maybe was going on out there and I know you might be implicated in, <laughs> <laughs> I get home and I turn on the news and channel three is out there. The local news station talking about how they've, they've been finding swastikas, uh, <laughs> written on different thing, buildings and such at Kent mm. state. Now they're going to go back and review surveillance footage. And there's my dopey ass just walking around the campus. Just wandering completely around. Completely out of place. That's right. School's out. So yeah. it was a ghost town. It was mm. just fucking me. Noted neo-Nazi Mike Namapod <laughs> caught uh, spray painting swastikas all over campus. Right. Yeah. You're not supposed to be there. Just. Yeah. Hey, no. Wandering around. There was no security. Nobody asked me what I was doing there. I just felt like I was free to walk around and mosey about and learn some stuff. I'm recruiting for the clan. Is anyone doing, I guess, do anything tonight? <laughs> We're having a keg party over at clan town. Is that so wrong? I'm just recruiting members from my, my group. Um, we burn crosses to stay warm in these cold Ohio nights. It's not my intention to be doing all these local stories, but between James Garfield and this one, that's kind of been what I've been doing. Well, yeah. you've picked up a book on this, right? I did. Uh, Prior, I, I, I had the idea to do the show before I got the book, though. Oh, okay. And then I went and got the book because I was just interested in kind of learning more and figured, hey, this can be a good episode, maybe. 
Um, and in fact, uh, just to kind of go over my sources real quick, the book was 67 Shots by Howard Means, which was a fantastic, very thorough, well-written mm. book. Um, and I thought like probably the fairest that you can probably find on this subject when it comes to the city of Kent, the students, the administration, the uh, Ohio National Guard. So 67 Shots by Howard Means was really good. I also picked up Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio by Durf Backdurf, who I believe did the My Friend Dahmer book. Yeah. Um, his was good, too. It's all done in like newspaper comic strip, and it kind of mm. reenacts the entire weekend of what happened at Kent State. Um, really good. That's how the Dahmer book is, too, that is he it? wrote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same it's, style. It's very interesting. And it's just a different, like, you know, so you're not just looking and, and reading page after page. Kind of yeah. breaks it up. Gives you the same information. But, you know, yeah. the cartoon illustrations were a nice uh, change mm. of pace. Uh, then I watched the documentaries May 4th, Our Place in History, and The Day the 60s Died. And then the uh, website, Kent.edu. Had some good stuff on there. So, And then, obviously, touring today. <laughs> the campus. Did you get mugged or anyone wanting your autograph or pictures, right? Yeah. Like I said, it was kind of a ghost town. There was like a high school there. It looked like they were on like a tour of doing like the Kent State shooting stuff, mm. kind of walking around and they were fucking taking their sweet ass time up at the top of the hill with a National Guard open mm. fire. We'll get to that. And I had to go stall and wait for them to leave so that I can go up there and check it out. Anyways. Should have went and cucked the dean's wife like, uh, <laughs> like Hank did in California. Yeah, I should have. It's right up your alley. You know, it didn't cross my mind when I was there. Wow. Shame on me. <laughs> should have known better. Don't do research. Just go bang the dean's wife. <laughs> Get the inside track. Wait, so your name is Dean Kuntz? <laughs> I watched that the other day. So, so great. Good. It's season three, right? It is season three. All right, let's set the scene kind of for what was going on uh, in the 1970s in the United States. By May of 1970, over 50,000 U.S. soldiers had been killed in Vietnam, dating back as far as the 1950s when troops first touched down in Southeast Asia. By 1970, the U.S. was averaging 17 soldier deaths per day, which per our opening intro that we did, that was down from 1968, but they were still averaging 17 per day. Isn't that crazy? Could you imagine that today? No, no way. How many, this might, this is probably gonna be harder off the top of our heads, but I wonder how many soldiers in the Iraq war or Afghanistan war died a day. If only there was a site so we could type this. <laughs> I think it ended up being oh, a little over 5,000 total in 20 years. So I yeah, think, I didn't think it, roughly, I knew it was nowhere close to this. And in the year 1970 alone, the deaths were just over 6,000 us soldier deaths in, in vietnam but in 1968 46 deaths per day that's they crazy were averaging it really the, is crazy its, that was at its peak for us uh the war in vietnam is one of the most controversial times in american history many americans opposed the war from the get-go but even more opposition grew as the 1960s rolled on and more and more troops were sent over to fight in vietnam despite presidential claims that the war would soon be over and our troops brought home then in November of 1969, Americans learned about the My Lai Massacre, which occurred in March of 1968, a year and a half earlier. In short, the My Lai Massacre saw U.S. Army soldiers kill somewhere between 347 and 504 unarmed South Vietnamese people. Soldiers were reported to have mutilated some of the bodies, many included children, and even gang raped some of their victims. When Americans found out about this horrible tragedy, opposition towards the war grew stronger. 
On top of that, about a month after learning about the Miley massacre on December 1st, 1969, the United States reinstated the first draft lottery since World War II. This time, however, many of the deferments that were originally in place during the war during World War II were being removed, which left college students unsure as to what their futures might hold. Because previously, if you were a college student, you were exempt from the draft. This time, that wasn't necessarily clear up front and people weren't sure. Bone spurs were still an acceptable deferment, as I understand it. I've heard that. Yeah. I think flat footedness as well. Flat feet. I have flat feet. You might have been, you got, would have been deferred. Well, you you were deferred, right? You were 22 years old then? That's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And incidentally, and we'll get into this in a bit, but because of this, a lot of younger Americans who were either in college or even, or just not and just working, joined the National Guard to avoid being shipped over to Vietnam. They thought if they can just serve here, it might keep them a little bit safe. Yeah, smart. I mean, and I know it's a whole other story, but it, looking back at things now, it seems like the Gulf of Tonkin thing that actually started all of this in the 60s was fake to never really happen. Just another interesting part of the Vietnam story. Maybe coming from Professor Dave in the future. Man, you never Gulf know. of Tonkin. Given the increased unpopularity of the war, college campuses began to see a rise in protests and rallies where university students and even unenrolled young Americans would speak out and call, call for an end to the bloodshed in Vietnam. This was no different at Kent State University. The Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, is the largest student protest organization in American history. At its peak, SDS had over 100,000 members. It was founded in 1959, and the SDS rose to prominence during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But as opposition to the war grew, Vietnam became the SDS's main focus. While it was the objective of the SDS at the time to speak out and bring an end to the Vietnam War, many of the tactics used by the SDS and its allies were a bit extreme. Now, SDS was different than the STD org of which you were a part of in college, right? (laughs) That's a separate... Correct. Okay. And our mission in the STD org was that our slogan was, it's not our fault. (laughs) No, 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 we didn't give that to you. You might have given that to us. And we accepted men and women. Understood. Thanks for clarifying. So um, I'm going to get into some of the things now that kind of uh, relate directly to Kent that kind of build us to the weekend uh, of May in 1970 we're going to talk about. First, on April 1st, 1969, the Kent State chapter of the SDS attempted to enter an administration building with a list of demands, one of which being the abolition of the school's ROTC program. While the SDS was serious about their demands, it's also believed that they kind of were just looking to provoke a confrontation with authorities. When they arrived at the building, they were met by police, and yes, a conflict did occur. Several police officers reported to have been hit and attacked by the students, so the university revoked the charter of Kent's SDS. A few weeks later, at a disciplinary hearing for two of the students who were members of the SDS, a massive brawl broke out outside the building between SDS supporters and counter-demonstrators. When all was said and done, the Ohio State Patrol arrested 58 people. Later that fall, a Portage County jury found four SDS leaders guilty of assault and battery, and each were sentenced to six months in county jail. On April 10, 1970, this is less than a month before the shootings, Jerry Rubin, leader of the Youth International Party, also known as Yippies, and one of the infamous Chicago Seven, spoke at Kent State. During his speech, Rubin was reported to have said, quote, the first part of the Yippie program is to kill your parents. They are the first oppressors. But 
Much of what Rubin said in his speeches was considered to be street theater, things that he said to elicit a strong media response and gain widespread attention, not necessarily anything he meant to be taking liter- taken literally. Rubin's comments quickly grabbed the attention of the local Kent community and authorities who now began to see Kent State students as radicals and a threat to their peaceful community. So maybe kill your parents was met was meant metaphorically, not literally slit your parents' throats. And that, and you know, that was kind of the point of Jerry Rubin, and, and I think the yippies in general was mm-hmm. kind of like that street theater, mm-hmm. say the extreme thing to get people's attention. You know, maybe to ruffle some feathers, but they weren't actually going out slitting their parents' throats. <laughs> I think when we we're going to get to like some of these rumors that get get spread, saying something like that, even if it's street theater is going to whip people up big time. Yeah. Between that and then hearing about some of these groups or the group we're going to talk about in a moment, I think for sure, because yeah. the, you know, the, the far radical groups were doing some of this stuff and, you know, terrorizing communities. And, you know, you got to remember we're in Podunk, Ohio. These people aren't, you know, this is it's also a, it's a small, it's a small working class blue collar town. Right. Um, you know, and they enjoyed their peace and quiet. Many of them knew or had a relative fighting in Vietnam and saw the students as a disgrace and anti-American for being so outspoken against the war. So just the fact that they were even protesting the war, even nonviolently, you know, they, they saw that as the worst kind of American. Like, how dare you? That's 100 percent accurate. Um, you know, I've heard it said in my lifetime. Uh, I remember being in high school and a teacher uh, uh, a conservative teacher at the time said that he felt it was anti-American to protest a war while soldiers were over there fighting. And sure. it's kind of that same sentiment set sentiment that they had at this time. Um, I would say that I don't know that there's anything more American than protesting an unjust war. That's getting Americans uselessly killed overseas, serving no purpose. I agree with, I mean, protests and speaking out is, part of freedom of speech and what, you know, what makes this country great. You don't need a first amendment to protect popular speech. It's quite quite the opposite. Now, that being said, if you're one of these people and you hear Jerry Rubin saying this ridiculous stuff and you're reading in the newspaper, what these radical groups are doing again, we'll get to that in a minute. I understand where their mindset is, but there's not really any evidence presented that this is what's going on on Kent campus. We had the same thing happen here in our town. There were protests going on. Was that last year? Some protest that it just started circulating through Facebook that people were coming here to protest and do stuff here. And everybody was all whipped up on the Medina Facebook group. Oh, it was uh, when the Black Lives Matter protest got out of hand a little bit downtown. People were yeah. boarding up their, their windows in town here. It was yeah. uh, it's like nobody, quite and ridiculous. It, and it yeah. ended up being like a very peaceful protest and you know the community of Kent also heard what leaders of the sds and people like jerry rubin were saying and became fearful that their town was becoming unsafe and that they were going to be targeted by these angry mobs of students then on april 30th 1970 president richard nixon who had pledged during his presidential campaign in 1968 to end the war in vietnam announced during a live national broadcast that he would be sending troops into cambodia This enraged students and anti-war protesters all over the country. Instead of de-escalating the war and bringing troops home, Nixon was now taking the war to another country and increasing the number of troops that would be shipped over to Southeast Asia. And he'd already been bombing them secretly for a year before he announced that. Now it was just official, and (laughs) and now he's going to up the game and be sending more troops. 
And they were also running a secret war in Laos next door, too. So there was a lot of stuff going on over there. And there's actually, um, if you look at the 1968 presidential election, Nixon was getting involved behind the scenes and illegally with peace talks to try to put them off yeah, so that it would hurt right. Lyndon Johnson and the Democrats and, and try to tell people, hey, when, when I win, you know, We'll do the peace talks then. Yep. Oh, you know, the, the Vietnamese and, and the, the North and, and South and, uh, you know, wanted to push off peace talks because that would look favorable upon his opponents who were running for president. And Came close to treason, in my opinion. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. That whole 1968 election is fascinating. So this gets us to Friday, May 1st, 1970. The day after Nixon's Cambodia announcement, at around noon, roughly 500 Kent State students and faculty gathered on the commons, which is a large grassy area in the middle of campus. During the rally, a group known as Whore, world historians opposed to racism and exploitation, buried a copy of the Constitution to symbolize Nixon's murder of constitutional principles by invading Cambodia without a declaration of war or consultation with Congress. A sign was also put up on a nearby tree that read, quote, why is the ROTC building still standing? And another rally was planned for Monday, May 4th at noon. As mentioned earlier, Kent did have an ROTC program on campus, and that included an ROTC building located right off the commons. Did you go over what ROTC means? I did not. Reserves Officers Training Corps? Yep. Kind of can go to school and train to be an officer in the military simultaneously? Mm-hmm. They offer scholarships and such for it. I like that whore name. That's an interesting. Uh, I believe Danny DeVito would pronounce it whore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk about uh, grabbing someone's attention. And then you're like, what is that? Oh, we're just world historians and we don't like racism yeah, and exploitation. Yeah. I'm in a group known as Citizens United for Nice Titties. And we get a lot of flack for, <laughs> you know. I wonder why. <laughs> get shirts coming out. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> go ahead. I was gonna say in college you were in that that organization, the regular users of forced intercourse, <laughs> roofie for short, right? <laughs> it's like, I was trying to figure out in my head. Yeah, no, probably got a lot of no, flack for I that. I don't one like too. what you're insinuating with that, pal. <laughs> don't ever let me back on a college campus again. And I quite enjoyed my visit today. <laughs> so that same night. This is Friday still. Roughly 11 p.m., a crowd of drunken protesters formed in downtown Kent and began taunting local police, throwing beer bottles at their cars and breaking storefront windows. Before long, nearly 500 drunk, angry protesters were terrorizing the town, blocking traffic, and challenging the few police that were in the area. By 12.30 a.m., Kent Mayor Leroy Satrum declared a city emergency and ordered all the bars to be closed. With even more students piling out of the bars, the streets became a mess and the entire Kent police force was called in, as well as Portage County deputies. When protesters ignored their calls to leave, police began using tear gas to force the protesters out of the streets and back to campus. It was also reported that the police used their guns to hit and club protesters and rioters who weren't following orders or weren't moving quickly enough. Things finally quieted down around 2 a.m. that night. Prior to the situation being resolved that evening, however, after declaring a city emergency, Mayor Satrum called Ohio Governor Jim Rhodes and informed him that SDS was rampaging through the town and had already taken over a portion of Kent. Obviously, this was a bit of an exaggeration. With this information, though, given to Governor Rhodes, a call was placed to the National Guard liaison officer to head to Kent and assess the situation. Okay, appropriate steps so far. I agree. 
It's they getting a little out of hand. They were getting a lot of hand. Yeah. I mean, if you're a local business owner downtown, things like that's going are going on. Yeah. And I think you would agree with this. And uh, obvious, direction. obviously the business owners were pissed and I didn't have this in the notes, but it was reported that like the rest of the weekend, those business owners were on top of their buildings with guns waiting for the students to do something else. And they I'm were going to sure open they were. So that was something else that the, the authorities and the mayor had to keep in mind. And I think the biggest thing we're going to see here is, you know, perhaps this situation, Mayor Satrum, even Jim Rhodes, the governor, they handled the city issue fine with that. But when it came to campus, there was really no oversight, no plan, no chain of command. No logistics at all. Nothing. Nothing. It just, well, we'll get into it. Now, now we're on Saturday, May 2nd, 1970. Because of the fact that some students the night prior had essentially rioted and caused a lot of damage to local businesses in town, there was a large uproar from the Kent community. It should be mentioned, though, that several Kent State students returned to town the next morning to help clean up after the damage had been done the night before. However, now rumors started circulating that the Kent students had been infiltrated by outside radicals, and we'll get into the radicals in a minute, and that these radicals planned to continue to terrorize the entire city. And rumors ran wild here. There was talk that the students were going to lace the city's water with LSD, that they were stocking up on piles and piles of guns and ammunition, and they were, they were building underground tunnels to blow up businesses. And some business owners stated people who they believed were students threatened that if they didn't display anti-war signs in their storefronts, they would damage and burn their buildings. There was also a report from Kent Police Chief Roy Thompson that his reliable source told him the student protesters would next be targeting the local army recruiting station, the post office, and the ROTC building on campus. To be clear, other than the ROTC building, because like we said, they put that sign up before on campus about why it's still standing, the rest of the rumors were all just hearsay, and there was no evidence provided to support any of these rumors being reported. Quote, unquote, reliable source. Right. A.K.A. Yeah. Otis the drunk. Yeah. <laughs> in the drunk tank. We bring Otis up a lot. Andy Griffiths was a good show. <laughs> it was a good show. I can see the sheriff talking to the town drunk. That's his informant. Yeah. <laughs> I was at the protest last night. They said they're going to burn you all around. Where's my cell and my cot? Bunch of agit, agit, bad people are coming. <laughs> well, speaking of bad people and regarding the outside radicals we mentioned, one of the authority's biggest fears was a group called the Weathermen or the Weather Underground. And they could probably be their own show one day. Essentially, they were the radical wing of the SDS. The weathermen were domestic terrorists. They declared war on the federal government and set about on a bombing campaign against the police, government buildings, and corporate interest groups. In, the, in 1970 alone, they bombed more than 20 buildings. They bombed the Capitol building and the Pentagon. They weren't fucking around. I mean, they were legitimate terrorists. Yeah. Yeah. And so now this is what's in the mind of Kent authorities, again, based on nothing, but just kind of having this fear that this is now what they're dealing with. And like you said before, small town area, people oh, get yeah. whipped up. Absolutely. Quick. Very quickly. Small things get yep. blown way out of proportion. So now when you're talking about a terrorist organization infiltrating right. people, then yeah, that's it. And not exactly. to say, I mean, those riots the night on Friday night outside the bars were pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. 
it wasn't a small thing, but it also, you know, they weren't running around with guns. They were just drunk throwing beer bottles. You close the bars like the mayor did. Okay, now you got to get them off the streets. That's a regular Friday night in Kent. I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, these bombings from the weathermen received a lot of mainstream news coverage, and that's exactly what they wanted. One of the top leaders at this time was Terry Robbins, who had previously founded the Kent chapter of the SDS and had just been released from jail in February of 1970. Uh, Kent officials were convinced and very afraid that Robbins and the weathermen were behind the protests and riots at Kent. It should be noted again that there was never any actual evidence to support that the weathermen were involved with any of the events we're going to discuss this weekend at Kent State. And interesting side note. What officials didn't know is that Robbins was actually killed in March of 1970 during a weatherman bombing that had gone wrong. So he died two months prior to any of this even happening. They just didn't know that yet. Yeah, I actually was reading he and two other members of the Weather Underground were killed in a townhouse in Greenwich Village in Manhattan uh, building bombs. They they blew it up. It blew up. And and blew the building up and they were in it. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. And I think that the weatherman just kind of kayfabed that for a while and and... I think we have some uh, actual audio of that situation. Oh, really? Bagel, 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 tear. Put it reverse, tear. Put it reverse. Oh, Lord. Lord, Jesus. Oh, Lord. Oh, Jesus. What the what, what you doing, tear? Actual footage of Terry getting blown up. (laughs) We're on, right? It's not muted, is it? No, we're good. It'll never get old. (laughs) Never. No, I want to watch. What's the one with the fireworks where it's the the, bootleg fireworks? Bootleg fireworks. That one. That's a good one, too. All right. Any hoodles. So the weathermen were not great people, but not involved in this. On the morning of Saturday, May 2nd, Mayor Satrum had ordered, due to the serious threats he believed the town was facing, that there should be no sale of liquor. There would be no sale of liquor, beer, firearms, or gasoline unless it was pumped directly into a vehicle. No booze in Kent? Now I see why there was a riot. That makes more sense now. Oh, now you're out there protesting? (laughs) He also issued a city curfew from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. and a campus curfew of 1 a.m. Fearing that the town didn't have the resources to face what crazy rumors were being reported to him, Mayor Satrum called Governor Jim Rhodes and officially requested the assistance of the Ohio National Guard. Governor Rhodes, who had already deployed the the Guard 40 times in the previous two years in office, immediately approved the request at 5 p.m. that Saturday, but it would take a few hours for the National Guard to arrive. Around 8 p.m. that night, a group of students began to congregate on the campus commons. The crowd quickly grew, mostly with students who were just interested to see what was happening. After a few minutes of anti-war shouts and slogans, the crowd marched across the commons to the ROTC building. The students milled around for a while until a few began throwing rocks at the windows of the building. Eventually, things escalated and students began throwing flares into the building, setting it on fire. A few minutes later, the local fire department arrived, but as they tried to extinguish the fire, some of the students cut their hoses with machetes, ice picks, and knives. With no help from the city or campus police, their hoses being damaged and rocks still being thrown at the building, firemen were like, fuck this, left the area, and the building continued to burn. 
It was later reported that only about 15 students were throw or 15 people were throwing rocks and flares at the ROTC building with the majority of the crowd just standing by shouting and yelling. So while there may have been up to a thousand students on the commons for this rally, there were very few witness to be engaging in riot like behaviors. Many of the student protesters on campus didn't even attend this rally because they felt engaging in criminal acts like this played right into the authorities' hands. They were right. I agree. I mean, again, this is not good behavior. This is riot-like and very dangerous. But this happens at a lot of protests. It does. Outside agitators come in. They view it as a chance to burn shit and break windows and that, and it gives the whole protest and the whole movement a bad name. And something to keep in mind too with this, um, and we don't we don't we don't get into it a ton in in this story because it's it's a lot of just rumor innuendo and and things that, that there's not a lot of information on. But there were outside agitators alleged to be a part of this. There was also uh, undercover FBI, CIA, and local police agents involved in these protests. I have no doubt, and they're not sure to what extent, what role they maybe played in some of this agitation. Could it have been outside radicals? Sure. There's no evidence to support that. Could it have been outside you know, law enforcement agencies? Could be. Not unheard of. They certainly were a part of other protests. Exactly. I would be shocked if someone from the CIA wasn't in one of these protests. If they weren't in yeah. one, you would be shocked, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, at least someone from the CIA. Or they were all over crowd. this stuff. Absolutely, at least maybe came after the Friday night incident when yeah. authorities are like, "Hey, something's fucking happening here." They were trying to infiltrate all those groups back then, all of them. A little after 10 p.m. that night, close to a thousand National Guardsmen arrived in town and on campus for their occupation, thinking they may be facing thousands and thousands of armed and dangerous students. The National Guard showed up with 138 trucks of varying sizes. Seven armored personal carriers, which are essentially tanks that were also used for the heavy growth in the Vietnam jungle. Three armored personal carriers adapted for mortar launches, five armored command vehicles, 13 helicopters and four airplanes. Essentially, they showed up to the small town preparing for a minor war against a virtually unarmed group of student protesters. When the guardsmen arrived, there were some students meeting at the gates of the university, planning to march through downtown. At this moment, these students were not rioting, attacking anyone, or causing any damage, simply gathering. However, because they were trying to march through town, they were in violation of the 8 p.m. city curfew. The guardsmen forced them back to campus using tear gas and by charging the students with the bayonets of their M1 Garand rifles. One student was in fact stabbed with a bayonet, and several others were arrested for the curfew violation. Most of the students quickly left when the tear gas was fired at them. But a few of the more hardcore protesters did throw some rocks back at the guardsmen who were attacking them. A real quick note on the M1 Garand rifle. This was kind of at this point an outdated gun. Uh, the National Guard was just getting leftovers from the Army at this point, you know, old weapons. When the M1 Garand rifle was first introduced during World War II, I believe General Patton called it the greatest military weapon ever invented. Interesting. But at this point, I mean, you know, they still had bayonets on them. They were older. They were a little outdated as opposed to the technology that they would have in Vietnam. So they were just kind of hand-me-downs that they were using. Still very powerful guns. Yeah, and they didn't have sort of the crowd control stuff they use now. Not that it's great, but rubber bullets and and that kind of stuff to force crowds back without fucking bayonetting people. And all spirit, the National Guard. Fuck is this the War of eighteen (laughs) twelve? Right. 
And in all fairness to the National Guard, like they weren't prepared for like riot control, nor were they really well trained on how to do any of that. Of course not. Uh, so after attacking them with bayonets, tear gas, having rocks thrown at them, eventually the National Guard was able to force the students back to campus where essentially a police state was awaiting them. Helicopters flying overhead, guardsmen standing outside of all the building doors, and hundreds more patrolling the campus and the streets of Kent. Guardsmen began forcing students into their dorms, even though it was not yet campus curfew. Students that didn't immediately comply were met with tear gas, bayonets, and having guardsmen point their guns directly at them, essentially intimidating the students into the nearest buildings. Once inside, the guardsmen refused to let them out for the remainder of the evening. Martial law certainly seemed to be in effect. You can see the escalation happening in real time. Seems a bit much. When they're rolling hardware with all that. Seems like a lot. I feel like even if I wasn't one of the aggressive protesters, that would piss me off. And it's like, okay, you want to fight? Now we're going to fight. Sure. Is the school under, like, is the dean under the purview or the oversight of the governor? Like, this is a state school. If this was a private school, they could throw these people out. They wouldn't have any jurisdiction. I certainly think that's what the mindset that was used when all of this happened, because as we'll get to here in just a bit, the president of the university, Robert White, was not even notified that this was all happening. He was out of town on Friday and Saturday and then got a call hey, the National Guard just fucking rolled up on campus. Because it's a state school, and they don't necessarily have to tell them. They just do what right. they want, right? But but that's just the overall theme of just no communication in all of this. Right. No plan was in place. Hey, they want to protest. Okay, what can we do to ensure a peaceful protest occurs? Should we have the Portage County deputies there just to kind of block off the area, make mm-hmm. sure things stay calm? None of that was done. There was no plan in place. Everyone was flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah, seems like it. You would think if you're the mayor or even the governor, you might give a call to the university president and say, hey, here's what's happening. Just so you know, here's what we're going to do. Campus police weren't doing anything. The local police weren't doing anything. It has disaster written all over it from the start. Absolutely. Weren't doing anything or weren't involved? Like, were they the local police being communicated with? uh, I mean, they were being communicated with, but it was... there was no, there was no plan. Right. So there, there was, what is there really to communicate when, you know, the national guard just kind of taking over and, and implementing martial law, but they don't, we're going to get to that in a minute. They don't even know what that means. Like, what are we doing here? What is the, what is the, the goal? What's the, what's our agenda? Mm-hmm. Local police too, just kind of standing by offering us some assistance to the national guard. But Again, there's no plan for like, what are the students allowed to do and not allowed to do? We have these curfews in place, but can they just start protesting in the middle of campus? Were the curfews legal? Well, again, all of that we're going to get to here in just a minute. Well, well, somewhat in a minute. Yes. Sunday, May 3rd, 1970. Sunday was for the most part a relatively calm day. Because everyone was at church? Obviously. <laughs> um There was obviously tension between the students and the guardsmen, but it wasn't until uh, Governor Rhodes arrived in Kent that business picked up, so to speak. And there's actually pictures of uh, guardsmen and students like fraternizing, hanging out, laughing, talking. Some of these guardsmen were the same age as the students. (laughs) Exactly right. They only joined the guard to avoid being shipped over to war. 
which is what the students were trying to avoid, you know, and didn't want. Mm-hmm. There's pictures of like, you know, some of the, the students putting flowers in the in the rifles of the, the guardsmen, the guardsmen being okay with it, laughing, joking. You know, there's it was a calm day on that Sunday. Then old Governor Jim Rhodes shows up. Governor Rhodes was in the middle of a primary election for a U.S. Senate seat, and he wanted to use the situation in Kent to prove to his Republican voters that he was tough on crime. Up until this point, Governor Rhodes was trailing in the polls to um, Taft was the guy's name. I forget what his position was, and I believe he was a descendant of William Howard Taft. Rhodes, who was the governor, was trailing pretty largely coming into this because of campus riots that had happened at Ohio State that got way out of hand. Mm -hmm. Rhodes didn't act uh, uh, effectively or quickly enough for the, the Republican base at the time very much wanted to see law and order and Rhodes was so, kind of softer on Ohio State. So he goes, here's my chance. We're a few days away from the primaries now. I'm going to use Kent as the example. Spoiler, he did not win that primary. But because of the way Kent happened, he surged in the polls and lost by only 6,000 votes, <laughs> less than a percentage point. He did end up surging because of Kent. He lost the primary, though, right? He lost the primary right. to Taft, yeah. But he surged uh, immensely because of his actions here at Kent. That doesn't surprise me in one bit. Right, which, you know, we'll get to here at the end. But he did search, and he lost by less than a percentage point, and I believe it was just over 6,000 votes he lost by. Mm. Um, upon arriving in Kent, Governor Rhodes went to the local Kent fire station, uh, obviously playing on the fact that they were kind of attacked the night before and couldn't put out the ROTC building. Uh, and he gave a speech from the Kent fire station where he said, quote, We've seen here at the city of Kent, especially probably the most vicious form of campus oriented violence yet perpetrated by dissident groups. They make definite plans of burning, destroying and throwing rocks at police and the National Guard and the Highway Patrol. This is when we're going to use every part of the law enforcement agency of Ohio to drive them out of Kent. We are going to eradicate the problem. We're not going to treat the symptoms. And these people just move from one campus to another and terrorize the community. They're worse than the brown shirts and the communist element and also the night riders and the vigilantes. They are the worst type of people that we harbor in America. Now I want to say this. They're not going to take over the campus. I think that we're up against the strongest, well-trained, militant, revolutionary group that has ever assembled in America. It's a little aggressive. We are going to eradicate the problem. It's not great language. No, they're just college kids. And we're talking about they're worse than the brown shirts, really? Yeah. In, in Nazi Germany, they're worse than that. Is that right, Governor Rhodes? Fucking and, clown. And like we were saying, things had been calm on Sunday up until this. And then this is on the news. And students are like, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm sure. They're the worst kind of people we harbor in america that's it student protesters are the worst kind of people but this was the mindset of the i mean i guess you can call them pro-war i don't want to say that because you know not i don't think anyone is pro-war but the people who who supported us being in Mm -hmm. vietnam uh they looked at these people as absolute scum how dare you say we shouldn't be over there fighting those commies if you look back now do you think they still those people I mean, most of them aren't around anymore, but do you I was going to say, pal, I don't know if they made it to 1980. Do you think they still harbor <laughs> those same thoughts? Like when you look back at that, do you think, yeah, that was a great idea getting 58,000 people killed over there? I bet the majority of them do. Do you think so? I think so. I think there's a lot of people that refuse to admit 
when they're wrong about something like that. That's for sure. And they'll just yeah. go down but with I, the ship. I don't yeah. even know if it's, and I'm sure that's part of it too. I'm sure there's maybe uh, uh, some percentage of people that kind of, as these years went on, were like, man, that really was bad. We shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. A percentage that was like, oh, I was wrong, but I'll never admit that. And then probably a large percentage was just like, no, we should have been over there. We were fighting the good fight. We should maybe, and then maybe those people are like, we should have pulled out quicker or sooner, but we were over there. But that whole communism scare was just crazy, right? We yeah. just did it crazy everything. things. They were looked at and were as the absolute worst. Well, other than the protesters, they were the absolute worst. The communism scare even went into like fucking UFO groups. Yeah. We talked about Albert yeah. Bender. They Absolute infiltrated insanity. his shit. Yeah. Like you couldn't convince, I mean, 10% of this country today that it made sense to put U.S. troops in, in Ukraine to fight Russia. Yet all those people were in favor of intervening in a civil war in a small country in Southeast Asia. It just, I don't know. It's, it's hard to wrap your head around today. It's the Truman Doctrine, right? They yeah, had to live up to that. Yeah, and, they had to go stop I, the spread at all costs. At all costs. And and I get that it's probably hard to look back. And if you lost a family member or if you were over there and you lost friends, kind of being able to look back with perspective and and saying this how silly this might have been and, you know, with someone that, that gave their life over there. I get that. But just taking a broader view. I try putting myself in the place of maybe like a parent that has someone fighting overseas. How would I feel about this group of kids protesting the war? Would I see them as privileged and entitled? And like, hey, my kid's over there risking his life. You're probably coddled. And I'm just trying to wonder how I would. Yeah, and I understand that. I completely understand. Sure. It's hard to. And that's what a lot of this Kent community was feeling. I think that's right. On top of that, they're hearing, you know, police chief Roy Thompson say, you know, they're going to attack all these buildings and the army recruiting station where your kid might be and the post office and the weathermen are coming in and they're going to bomb all of our houses and buildings. I would be terrified if I was a resident. I think you're right. It's hard to take an objective view in a situation like that. Right. Yeah. There needed to be someone to cool this down a bit. It should have been Governor Rhodes. And then the, that's, and right. that's just the point. There was no one, and, and that, I'm glad you said that, there was no one at any point, students, the mayor, Governor Rhodes, the national, no one stepped up and said, how, how do we end this? What's, let's resolve this and, and be peaceful. Or look, or look two steps forward and go, yeah, this isn't going to end well. Let's do something about this. Well, Governor Rhodes going into business for himself here is... He's trying to win an election. Right. Yeah, this just fueled, the, in my opinion, this fuel this to you know what we're going to get he was he was playing to the votes for sure and was trailing and was in a hail mary situation and 50 years later we're uh exact same situation constantly and you're right yeah nothing's really all they give a fuck about is getting reelected um and so i you know i hope we're making a point as to how the community felt again my my purpose when putting these notes together was to be as fair as possible now in the end facts are facts and rumor and innuendo is rumor and innuendo so make of it what you will. And obviously we all have our thoughts on it, but I tried to be as fair as possible going through this, which is why I wanted to talk about the days leading up to the shooting, because the students in some, some students were being aggressive, were being rioters, were, uh, you know, throwing rocks at innocent firemen and cu- using machetes. Without to a cut doubt, their you have to have context here. We want to tell the whole story here. Yeah, so fire- we're not trying to be completely, you know, just biased towards the students. 
that firefighter shit is that's bad. It's not good. No. Again, it was a very small group of students, but it did happen. Or or protesters. Again, we don't know if they were students mm-hmm. or not. They very well might have been. But and it probably was premeditated given that sign that they had put up the day before about why is the ROTC building stand, still standing. Um so given that quote that Ian read uh from uh Governor Rhodes it's pretty strong and cryptic words. And frankly, it was a lot of BS. Uh, Rhodes also noted in his speech that he was declaring the situation a state emergency. However, he never did officially submit any of the paperwork for that, compromising the legality of everything local authorities and the National Guard tried to enforce. So, Dave, that goes back to your curfew. He never actually submitted any paperwork for it to be an official uh, state emergency. Mm. He was just saying the words mm-hmm. and then saying, OK, go do that was his whole point. It didn't matter if he actually did it. No. And no one was saying anything otherwise. Nope. You would like to think that at the very least, maybe President White, Robert White of Kent State, would have stood up for the students and said, hey, what's going on? He didn't. He was kind of distant from mm-hmm. all of it. Very laissez-faire about it. Kind of like, oh, the National Guard's here. I'm hands off. Yeah. You know, what can I do? Right. So while Sunday had become begun as a fairly peaceful day, there was still a breakdown in communication between the National Guard, university officials, local authorities, and the students. First, there was confusion on campus as to who was actually in charge. Robert White, the president of the university at the time, as I had said earlier, was out of town when he received the call that the National Guard was on their way to campus. He was shocked to hear this as he had not been notified by Mayor Satrum, Governor Rhodes, nor the National Guard. Second, even though Governor Rhodes <coughs> declared a state of emergency, it wasn't clear to any of the authority to any authorities what exactly that meant and what laws they could and could not enforce. He declared a state of emergency in the same way Michael Scott declared bankruptcy. <laughs> I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> I like how like a couple minutes after that, Oscar walks into his office like. You know, you, that's not how it works. Like, you can't just yell bankruptcy. It's like, what do you mean? I didn't yell it. I declared it. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's exactly what Governor Rhodes did. Like, just saying it doesn't make it so. And there are a lot of other puzzle pieces that need to be put together. Meanwhile, you know, the National Guard is sitting there with their, like, thumbs up their asses. Like, what the fuck are we supposed to do now? Right. Students don't know what the hell's going on. Uh, an interesting note about that, students were now being told over like the campus radio that they could not be together on campus in groups of two or more, or they would be charged with unlawful assembly per the Ohio Riot Act. Is that even a real thing, though? It, it doesn't sound like it. I was trying to do some research into the Ohio Riot Act, and I, I don't even think it the exists. The Ohio Riot Act at this time, from what I read, was not even a legal thing. It didn't even <laughs> right. it, it wasn't it didn't even become like a bill until two years later. That's what I found. I couldn't right. find it. It was that doesn't mean anything. So but they're telling now they're telling campus, you know, over the radio students are hearing. So now they're hearing it from their peers. Hey, you can't be in groups of two or more. Don't fucking walk to class with three of you. you you're gonna get shot or arrested. In groups of two. They didn't say shot. They arrested. In groups of two or more. So it should be groups of more than two. Okay. Sorry. I apologize. So I was going to say like, well, you can't fucking walk with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Two people can walk. If three people are together, it's an all unlawful assembly. Well, how are you supposed to have three ways? I mean, that's what you do in college, right? (laughs) Well, I believe this meant on outside on campus Uh, because they weren't stopping like classes from happening. Okay. So you can have your three ways. Got it. Not outside, pal. Keep it inside. What fun is that? You can't go do it on the commons, ringing the victory bell while you're, you know, in the middle of a threesome. So you said that they didn't stop classes. 
Well, this is still the weekend, technically. So okay. the National Guard showed up on Saturday. We're now on Sunday. But at, yes, Monday classes were still planned okay. to go on. If you had your kid there at this time, would you have tried to get them to come home? Some parents were afraid. A lot of students kind of gave the old mom, I'm going to be fine. Like, you know, we're just going to go protest peacefully and go Mm. chant and talk. And, uh, you know, I think people were kind of overwhelmed and kind of shocked by it all. Like they didn't, you know, you hear the national guards there, but, but then you talk to your kid and like, mom, everything's fine. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. just going to class or whatever. And I don't think people actually thought that anything was going to happen. Like these are just students on campus. And I don't know. I'm speculating. No, you're probably exactly right. But I know, you know, uh, one of the victims we're going to talk about uh, later, Jeff Miller, talked with his mom earlier the on either Sunday or Monday. I can't remember. And he was like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll call you later. And he never called. Mm. By 8.45 p.m. Sunday evening, a large group of students met at the Commons. Due to the size of the crowd, local authorities recommended to the National Guard that the 1 a.m. curfew campus curfew be abandoned and an immediate curfew be imposed. And so Ian, this is like the, the police. So you had asked what their involvement was when they saw this group kind of forming up. They're the ones that told the national guard, Hey, let's bump up that curfew. Again, there, there's no one no oversight here, right? Just the police telling the national guard, the national guard's like, fuck it. All right. That 1am curfew. Uh, it's now 9pm. And the National Guard read the Ohio Riot Act and demanded that the crowd disperse within five minutes or action will be taken. They're just making it up as they go. Exactly. With no authority to do these things. Right. So that's the thing, too. Like, if the if the Ohio Riot Act didn't exist until two years later, the bill, what did they actually read? I'm not sure what you they know actually what I mean? were reading. You're right. Or what they were actually yeah. saying. But they were citing the Ohio Riot Act. And mm. I'm not even sure we can, we'll can ever find out what they were actually saying. But yeah. um, they were stating hey per this this law you now have to disperse because it's a state of emergency and you can't be meeting and this is too big of a crowd and so now the curfew which was on campus 1 a.m it's now 9 p.m fuck out of here um the crowds obviously didn't disperse and guardsmen began shooting tear gas and again using their bayonets to charge the students there were reports that the guardsmen didn't even wait the full five minutes that they had allotted the students before attacking them instead of returning to their dorms some of the students split off into two groups. One group headed to Kent State President Robert White's house, and another group held a sit-in at Prentice Gate at the front of the university. The sit-in group asked for a chance to meet Mayor Satrum and President White to discuss the list of demands they had, one of which being the immediate removal of the National Guard from campus. Rumors began swirling that Mayor Satrum was actually on his way to the scene. This news lightened the mood of the students, and for the time, everything was relatively peaceful. What's interesting about this, uh, someone actually came over a loud police speaker indicating Mayor Satrum and President White were on their way. Mm. To this day, that person has never been identified. The police don't take credit for it, and none of the students knew who it was who yelled that. But it calmed the crowd. It calmed the police and the National Guard because the students were now kind of relaxing. However... By 11 o'clock that night, police confirmed that neither White nor Satrum were coming to the rally and informed the guardsmen to shut everything down. The Ohio Riot Act was once again read, and the students were told the curfew, which had already been changed to 9 p.m., was now 11 p.m., and everyone must leave. I wonder if the same person read it. (laughs) He, like, opens a scroll. (laughs) Payroll of Governor Rhodes! (laughs) 
I do declare the Ohio Riot Act. Uh, something like that. Dave might have had something better. Sorry. I was going to say, hear ye, hear ye. Yeah. Hear ye, hear ye. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. There's a lot of uh, tomfoolery going on here. Yeah, a little bit. And it was as soon as the governor showed up with that aggressive ass quote. That definitely right. turned the page for Sunday. Things were calm. People like they were the guardsmen and students were getting along fairly well. I mean, as well as they could for having fucking National Guard outside of every building. Right. Helicopters and all the such. After changing the curfew to 11 and telling everyone to go the fuck home, the guardsmen didn't wait long until they began aggressively charging students with their bayonets, stabbing at least two of them, shooting tear gas at them and forcing them off the streets. Students were running to their homes and dorms while helicopters overhead patrolled the campus and shot down tear gas at anyone they saw outside. The students said the whole situation felt like a war zone. Eventually, the guardsmen managed to clear the streets and the campus and force the students inside. For the time being, everything was quiet, but the stage was now set for the May 4th rally scheduled for noon the next day on the campus commons. Monday, May 4th, 1970. Students woke up Monday morning with reminders all over campus that the noon rally was to be held on the commons later that day. Some school officials tried to stop the event by handing out thousands of leaflets indicating that the rally was canceled. A portion of these professors and administrators didn't agree with the protests and wanted to see the students stopped. Others feared more clashes with the National Guard and wanted to keep everyone safe. Do you think that it was, it was uh, safety-based or philosophical against the protests? I think both. Kind of a mix. I think it was a mix of both. Just kind of working together to try to put an end to it. Maybe some of these professors were just sane and like, hey, somebody needs to step up and be a voice of reason here. Like, we need to stop this. And we'll get into one guy here after the shootings in a bit that kind of saved the day. But, um, yeah, I think it was a mix of both. I think some of the professors were just, you know, look at these, uh, you know, piece of shit anti-war protesters. Like, how dare they? Let's pass Mm -hmm. these out. Efforts were made nonetheless on both sides. Either way, they were off or not. By 11 a.m., several hundred students already began to gather. And by noon, it's estimated that a few thousand students were present at the rally, but only about two to 300 were actively participating. A large majority of the students were simply there to observe. And still, the vast majority of campus didn't participate in the rally at all. They simply went about their day going to and from classes. So, and like I said, we said earlier, I went to Kent State today just to kind of look around and see some of the memorials they have. And the commons are set up, like I said, a big grassy area. But on the far side, by the victory bell, kind of where the, the rally begins, there was just a big hill that goes up towards like Taylor Hall, the building there. Students would just kind of sit on like that hill, almost like arena style, mm-hmm. to just kind of watch the rally down below. You know, not necessarily participating just there. Overall, about a thousand in general students. Okay. Earlier in the day, the National Guard, university officials, state highway patrol, and the mayor's office all met to discuss a plan for dealing with the students. However, none of them knew officially what was to be enforced regarding curfews and assembly due to the confusion and hastily ordered state of emergency by Governor Rhodes. Remember, he never even submitted the official paperwork for declaring the state of emergency. So this all begs the question, if the authorities on campus aren't sure what laws were now to be enforced, how could the students know or understand what was expected of them? And like the president of the United States is considered the commander in chief of the armed forces of the United States. The governor is considered 
the commander in chief of the National Guard, essentially. Have, yes. Until they're federalized for, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nixon could have federalized them if he wanted to. I think I don't think he was trying to have any part of that, but he's not doing a great job here. Mm-mm. Especially with all the hardware, the military hardware that they brought onto campus. Right? Right. The bayonets I mean, keep sticking out to me. That is very that aggressive. And and to be crazy aggressive. Like crazy you, aggressive. Yeah. Nobody was killed by any of the bayonets. I mean, they suffered just just to because I didn't say that. Like, you know, I don't I don't believe anyone suffered any serious injuries, mm-hmm. just more kind of little puncture wounds, but they still were bayoneted and but just stabbing you know. college protesters with bayonets seems right. yeah. I get they burned a building down. I I get that, but but that that wasn't know. at the building burning. Yeah, I know. This was they st- for ignoring curfew. Like the penalty for ignoring curfew is not getting bayoneted. And that's what it was. It was Saturday and Sunday yeah. night when you were ignoring curfew. Maybe rocks being thrown. There was also reports that they were throwing bags of shit at them and piss. You know that there's no that has never been proven, or mm-hmm. we don't know for sure. But that was what was alleged. Either way, you know poop in a bag is not going to kill you a bayonet could kill you kill me you like you might need your ass beat for doing that but you don't need yeah. a bayonet you might throw hands with someone <laughs> yeah you throw a bag of feces on me and you are going to be in a lot of trouble <laughs> mister fair warning i'll give you a knuckle sandwich as soon as i get done violently throwing up contents of my stomach you got dude you got 20 minutes to get away while i'm throwing up and then it's on fuck you up (laughs) back on the commons at the rally led by general robert canterbury the national guard was stationed outside the now destroyed rotc building there the guardsmen were gearing up with their m1 rifles tear gas and donning gas masks shortly before the rally began at 11 50 a.m Canterbury ordered the protesters to disperse with the announcement being made by Kent state police officers riding in a military Jeep across the commons and using a bullhorn to be heard over the crowd. The students refused to disperse and hardcore protesters began shouting and throwing rocks at the guardsmen. General Canterbury ordered his men to lock and load their weapons and to begin firing tear gas into the crowd. The pissed off students, again, mostly the hardcore protesters, grabbed some of the canisters of gas and threw them back at the guardsmen. So now, at 12.05 p.m., 116 guardsmen split into three troops and began marching across the commons, forcing the crowd backwards. As the troops pushed forward, still shooting the tear gas, students retreated up and over a hill and outside of the commons area. Once over the hill, the students in a scattered group moved along the front of Taylor Hall, with some continuing toward a parking lot in front of Prentice Hall. Keep in mind, by this point, there were only a few hundred students left for the rally. A lot of the students had dispersed when the guardsmen started firing the tear gas. But now, down by Taylor Hall and Prentice Hall, and the parking lot, there were hundreds of more students not a part of the rally, sort of oblivious to what was going on, going about their day and walking to class. One of the three troops of guardsmen pursued the students over the hill, But instead of following the students into the parking lot, they continued marching straight, heading towards an athletic practice field enclosed by a fence. This troop had essentially pinned themselves in and were easy targets for more rocks to be thrown at them. They remained in this area for about 10 minutes, unsure of how to get out without looking foolish and retracing their path. I feel like it's almost like a Monty Python bit. Like they just kind of get stuck. They're just like marching in a circle. That's not what they were doing, but like, how do we get out of here? How do we get out? Or an animal house when they take them down the alley. 
the marching band. Yeah, they bunch right. up at the, at the yeah. end of the building. <laughs> they only know to go forward. <laughs> uh, it should be noted here that at one point, a group of these trapped guardsmen huddled up and appeared to be discussing something. And we say trapped. They could have gotten out, but they didn't want to look foolish by being by marching out. So they kind of stayed there for 10 minutes. Anyways, a group of these trapped guardsmen huddled up and appeared to be discussing something. To this day, those men refuse to talk about what was actually discussed in that huddle. Yeah, we know who those people are. Um, those guardsmen. I don't believe they've ever really been identified. There was a lot mm. of protection going on of uh, the guards and, okay. and who they were with regards to the huddle. Right. Like they don't. They've never actually been identified, at least to the best of my knowledge. I did read somewhere that it was some of the more experienced guardsmen that had huddled up, people who had kind of been through some battles before with with rioters or uh, aggressive behaviors. Um, but that was the most I had read about mm. it from what I could see. Some students who had retreated beyond the practice field fence where this troop was began throwing rocks at the guardsmen. Keep in mind, over the course of the weekend, students had already been attacked multiple times with tear gas and some stabbed with bayonets. So the students were pissed. Because much of the rally had been broken up, the actual number of protesters and rock throwers at this point is not really well known, but estimates place it somewhere between 10 to 50 of them. So now you essentially have 10 to 50. We'll go with 50 just to be on the higher end. You have 50 people that are still now taunting the National Guard, protesting, yelling, mocking them, throwing rocks of the thousands that might have initially been there. There's about 50 left that are actively participating how many troops protest. total so it was 116 men that moved forward with their advance with there was over rifles. a thousand on campus yes with rifles gas mass tear gas so 50 protesters mm -hmm. should not be that scary to uh 116 here 116 and it's not even known that all of, they're not all throwing rocks they're not you know they're they're maybe mocking them and getting in their face. They're flipping them off. They're, you know, waving flags in front of them. They're not all throwing rocks though. And, and again, estimates are tough as to what that number actually of course, was. Sure. So all the other students that were just watching, you know, like a lot of them had dispersed. They were, the they were just happened. gone. They left the they whole, were running were away. They, they were in scattered groups, kind of moving, just kind of getting out of the way. Right. And so when the, when the troops pushed them out of the commons area, the protesters over a hill and into like a, you know, two buildings and a parking lot area outside. Now they're just dispersed with, with, or, or now they're just, uh, you know, mixed up with regular students who are just going to and from campus, okay. just walking to their cars, walking to another building, just completely people who are oblivious to even what was happening. Not even realizing, you know, this is tensions are really high right that now. That tells you all you need to know about this situation. Right. And and so at that point, you went from a thousand protesters to a scattered group, everyone getting away, to now fifty protesters maybe, but hundreds more of just general students kind of going to and from classes. And on, they're in riot gear, right? Like if you're throwing yeah. rocks at them, they're bouncing off, right? Yeah, I mean it's there's there was no reported injuries. At 12.12 p.m., while all this was happening to the guardsmen on the practice field, another troop of guardsmen who were across the way and closer to the Prentice Hall parking lot were ordered by Major Harry Jones to kneel and aim their weapons towards the students in the lot. The troop did so, but none of them fired their guns. This was done as a threat to the students, and this plan actually backfired on the guard as the protesters who were there started mocking them and laughing at them. 
you know, kind of taunting them in a way. But they were loaded weapons, right? With live rounds. So, and we'll get into that in a bit, but yes, they were loaded weapons with live rounds that they were pointing at these protesters. Again, while hundreds of other innocent students were walking in the area. It's absolutely outrageous. It's a crazy scene that I, I, I have trouble picturing in my head. And, and we could even, uh, if this is hard for people to kind of comprehend by me just saying it, we can post a map maybe if we need to kind of show, mm-hmm. you know, where they were pushed off the commons and into the, the parking lot area. So maybe we'll do that. Um, or let us know if you want to see a map, we can send one. So again, the troop knelt and pointed their guns, but they didn't fire. Annoyed and frustrated, General, General Canterbury allowed Major Jones to take command of the area. Major Jones was kind of a known hard ass and, you know, liked law and order and uh, kind of was an old school type mentality. He had the guardsmen who were on the practice field, as well as the guardsmen who were pointing their guns, about 76 men in all, because there was still another troop that was on the far side of Prentice Hall that were kind of just posted up there overseeing everything. Um, So that was that's what would finish out the 116 men in general. But Major Jones oversaw 76 men. He had them form a wedge formation and retreat back up the hill to head back towards the ROTC remains on the commons. As they did, some protesters began following the guardsmen, and guardsmen claimed to have been struck by rocks and varying pieces of debris as they retreated up the hill. Eyewitnesses also later noticed noted that as guardsmen walked up the hill, they were seen patting each other on the shoulder, almost as a sign of some sorts. Now, nothing would ever come of that. We wouldn't learn much more about that, but that's what the eyewitnesses noted. Finally, at 12.24 p.m., while retreating back up the hill, a group of guardsmen who were at the back flank of this 76 men moving up the hill, a group of them slowly turned, knelt down, and opened fire into the hundred of students down below. Over the next 13 seconds, 28 guardsmen would fire 67 shots at the students. When all was said and done, four students were dead and nine more were injured. All of them were unarmed. Many of the guardsmen would later testify that they didn't shoot into the crowd, but instead over their heads as a scare tactic. However, none of this could ever really be confirmed because all the National Guard documentation used to monitor the guns and ammunition of the guardsmen that day mysteriously disappeared. Oh, that's how strange. (laughs) I love how that happens in these stories. Uh, right before the shots were fired, the police officer somehow turned their body camera off. Yeah, mm. Right. <laughs> That's like the That's wa- weird the Waco stuff. It's like yeah. all those overhead cameras all of a sudden turned uh, off for a mm. second. And so like what they they would keep records of like, you know, passing out I'm gonna pass out a gun to you, Dave, and now sign here, you get gun number thirty two. Mm. All those records were lost. Weird. It was also reported that the guardsmen quickly reloaded their guns to make it look like they had never fired them. You know, because there's no other ways of finding that. And out. the records of ammunition, I'm sure, were not available either. Hmm. Mm. Oh, sorry. I think we lost that in mm. the ROTC building uh, fire. For the record, there was no records from the National Guard in the ROTC <laughs> building. The National Guard would later say that about a thousand students chased them up the hill and that, quote, the air was black with stones, end quote, being thrown at them. In actuality, there was probably 50 protesters at most and of those being aggressive, none of them were within 150 feet of the guardsmen when the shots were fired. There is no evidence to support that the National Guard was in any imminent danger at that moment. Also, there have been widespread reports on whether or not an order was given to fire, or if this was a case of a single guardsman losing his cool. 
and others following his lead when he began shooting. We'll get into whether or not verbal orders were given in a bit, but there were some reports that as they were marching up the hill, witnesses saw Major Jones make a big sweeping gesture with his arm, which could have been perceived as a sign to open fire. <laughs> that's that's kind of the Waco or one of the Waco theories, right? Is that one um, somebody one guy from shoots. the ATF shot either on purpose or accident, and then mm. everybody unloaded? With this though, it's you know uh-huh. they turned and knelt and shot. Yeah, that's a lot different. You know, it, like we've done stories like the North Hollywood bank robber shootout and stuff. Even those police don't blindly fire. Into crowds like that where there's civilians right. in the area behind them. I mean, this is complete insanity. And and the majority of the student population down below, the large majority, were just civilian, innocent students going to class. These were not the protesters. Like, that's crazy. And again, the nearest protester, it's believed, was 150 feet away. You're not in imminent, imminent danger, danger, right? At 150 feet away. I was there today. I saw the markings where everybody was shot. They have little uh, plaques in the ground mm-hmm. for where every single person was shot. You're also, the National Guard was on top of a hill. So if you're throwing a rock 150 feet, it's even harder to get something, you know, that high and far. It's half a football field. Right. So. Mm. And we'll get, we'll get into more of that here in a bit. Let's talk a minute about the students who were killed. 21-year-old Jeffrey Miller was born in Plainview, New York, and initially attended Michigan State University. He transferred to Kent State in January of 1970. Miller was actively a part of the protest throughout the course of the weekend and was one of the individuals throwing the tear gas canisters back at the National Guard on this day. When the shooting began, a guardsman bullet struck Miller in the mouth, and the bullet exited through the base of his skull. He died instantly. Miller is featured in probably the single most iconic picture stemming from the Kent State shootings. It's the photo we posted a few days ago that shows 14-year-old Marianne Vecchio kneeling and screaming over Miller's body as blood flows from his head and down the street. The photographer, John Philo, would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize for that photo. 19-year-old Allison Krauss, like Miller, was also active in the protest that weekend. However, there's no record of her attacking or engaging in any aggressive behaviors towards the National Guard. Krauss was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and was part of the prestigious Kent Honors College. When the guardsmen opened fire on the students, Krauss was hit with a bullet that entered and exited her upper left arm and then entered the left side of her chest, fragmenting on impact and causing massive internal trauma. She was pronounced dead on arrival at nearby Robinson Memorial Hospital. 19-year-old William Schrader was not a part of any protests that weekend. In fact, he was actually a member of the ROTC. Schroeder was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and started college at the Colorado School of Mines on an ROTC scholarship before transferring to Kent State to study psychology. At the time of the shooting, Schroeder was just passing by in between his classes and stopped to see what was going on. Photos of the scene show him holding two tech, two books and a notebook. He was walking away from the scene when he was shot in the back. The bullet exited his body through his left chest, breaking several ribs, piercing his left lung, and destroying his thorax. Schroeder did not die immediately, but was pronounced dead shortly after arriving at Robinson Memorial Hospital. And 20-year-old Sandra Lee Scheuer, like Schroeder, was also not participating in any protests that weekend. She was born in Youngstown, Ohio, 
and was described by friends as a very traditional, kind woman. It's been said that of all the victims that day, Scheuer was the one with no political bone in her body. On this day, Scheuer wasn't attending the rally, nor was she stopping by to see what was happening like Bill Schroeder was. She was literally just walking to her class with her friend, Ellis Burns, when the shooting began. Upon realizing what was happening, Burns grabbed Scheuer and pulled her down to the ground. When the shooting stops, stopped, Burns told Scheuer to get up, but she didn't respond. Scheuer had been shot in the neck with the bullet penetrating her jugular vein. She would bleed out before any medical attention arrived. Nine other students were injured that day, including Dean Kaler, who was shot in the back with the bullet fracturing his vertebrae, permanently paralyzing him from the chest down. Kaler today is featured prominently in many of the Kent State documentaries that you can find online and various streaming services. I stated a bit ago that the nearest protester was more than 150 feet away from the guardsmen when they opened fire. The nearest bystander hit during the shooting was 60 feet away from the guardsmen. The furthest student wounded was over 750 feet away. So, were the guards actually in imminent danger? No, not even close. <laughs> no, and you said that Major Jones was a real by-the-book He, he was known to be guy. kind of a hard-ass, a law and order, a take-no-shit kind of guy. I wonder, you know, if that's true that, you know... If he gave the orders with that sweeping arm motion and, you know, you said they turned around and knelt. I wonder if he was just like, fuck this communist bullshit. You know, they're un-American. I have no doubt about it. Yeah. Let's just fire some shots in there and get them to back off. Right. The, The issue with that is, again, they were unarmed. Two, there were so many innocent people around just yeah. people not a part of any protests not causing any trouble three this is the united states of america and you're allowed to protest anytime you want also true the penalty for throwing rocks is not the death penalty the penalty for burning down an rotc building is not the death penalty right you can go fuck yourself those people walk in a class were two and a half football fields away that is not how you use a rifle you don't do that period there's laws in Ohio against you can't um, hunt with rifles because it's so flat. The bullets carry too far. The same fucking logic goes here. Yeah, they said the, the I, thought, I believe I read the power from an N1 rifle can go straight through a, a decent sized tree trunk. Just straight through it. You're on a fucking college campus with people walking around. Right. 13 people overall shot, four killed. Unbelievable. Nine other injured. And like we said, Dean Kaler paralyzed from the chest down. I mean, you you know, you're, you're from Ohio. You grew up hearing about this story. And, you know, unless you do extensive research, you don't know about the particulars like this. But it, come on. And that it's was my absolutely thing. insane. I, that's why I wanted to do this show, because I always knew about the shooting. I had heard about it. I knew enough, but I wanted to dive into it. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, let's make a show out of it. And it, it, you know, the feeling I got while reading the books and watching the documentaries, I hope I helped translate a little bit into the notes that I prepared for today's show. In my personal opinion, I felt like I still didn't feel like I got a good grasp of it in the notes. But you, I mean, it's crazy. And then you go to the campus and you're like, this is just a college campus. These are kids. These are students. And it just opened fired upon for speaking out against a war they didn't believe in. I'm not saying they were all completely innocent from any wrongdoing, yeah. but they didn't deserve to be shot. 
But in a closed environment where people throwing rocks and whatnot advancing on you from 25 feet away, maybe you can make the case. But not in an open college campus environment where people are walking around behind you and you're firing rifles. Right. And they're obviously not going to all hit their target. and, And there's open targets walking 700 feet behind you like that's insanity and so major jones was not one that fired it was he didn't fire anything so there's all there's there's the thought that this command was maybe not given by anyone these might have just been 28 tired scared ill-prepared guardsmen who opened fire but again why how did that happen were they the guards that were huddled up Where's the, where there's the shoulder pat a sign, you know, that's, you know, who gave that order? Was there an order given or was it just people getting fed up and tired and snapped? And even if you were in imminent danger, don't the surroundings dictate that you can't use your weapon in that matter because of what's directly behind the people you're shooting at down a hill into a parking lot. What the fuck are you talking about here? Um, The parking lot is uh, by the way, still there today. And they have, I sent you guys photos of it from my field trip. Uh, they kind of like paved over with like black each of the spots where the four dead bodies were or the four students killed mm-hmm. were and have like uh, five mini lampposts around that spot. Kind of as like a little memorial to them. It's very eerie because you literally can park right next to where Bill Schroeder was killed. You can park next to where Sandy Scheuer was killed. Allison Krauss, Jeff Miller, who was the closest one uh, was kind of like, like a, like it was like a a roundabout that connected two driveways. Now I don't think you can drive through because his little monument is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, I would, I think Ian, you asked me when I sent the text, like do those light up? And I believe the lights do work. So at night, that's gotta be pretty cool to see, you know, those, those four spots lit up. But uh, do we know who actually fired shots? Or was that lost? So the 28 guardsmen that fired, there were, there were civil suits brought against 28 guardsmen. Okay. Um, but we'll get into, you know. My thought process right now is that. It's it's still unclear, I believe, specifically who shot. Like, okay. they don't, I don't think they 100% know. Because, we don't know. Because those records sure. were lost. Yeah. Right now, I feel like even if there weren't direct orders given, it just all stems back to communist stuff. And just like they're like they're anti-American. Yeah. They're not worth it. Fuck I it. think you're absolutely right. And, and so I guess I should be more clear. I think, I think that they do know who the 28 confirmed shooters are. Okay. I believe beyond that, they have not confirmed anybody else mm. because as we'll get into, there were, you know, court things that happen and we'll get into that so that i believe they identified 28 that they know to have shot okay i think beyond that they don't know if more mm. were shot i didn't know if that was something issue. that magically disappeared you know got yeah lost. no i think they identified at the tw- at least 28 that okay. did fire their their arms because I, I would be interested to see what their what their mindset was like like if they were law and order by the books type guys, or if they join to get out of going to Vietnam to be a little safer. We'll or, get into know. a little, and in just a bit, but the, the majority of the guardsmen who testified all just said they felt they were being attacked and that's why they shot. That mm. was kind of the, the going line to use. Um, on the other side of things, 
While it was initially reported by newspapers that a number of National Guardsmen had been killed or seriously injured, the truth is only one Guardsman, Sergeant Lawrence Schaefer, was injured enough to require medical treatment, which was his arm was put in a sling because he had a bruise on his arm. And he sustained his injuries approximately 15 minutes prior to the shootings. (laughs) So this wasn't like they were being attacked and they were getting hurt. The initial reports, though, like as this was breaking news, the initial reports were guardsmen killed on the Kent State campus. Yeah. That's what was kind of being putting out, put out there. It wasn't students That's what people shot remember. At, or students killed. It was yeah. guardsmen killed at Kent State. Immediately following the shootings, the campus was in a state of shock. The only sounds heard were the sirens of ambulances. Throughout the entire National Guard occupation of campus, many of the students believed that the M1 rifles the guardsmen were carrying contained blanks, and the guns were only being used for intimidation purposes. They didn't actually believe they would be loaded, let alone fired. A few thousand students sat down in the commons and refused to leave. Tensions grew as the National Guard reminded them that this was considered an illegal assembly and they needed to disperse. Guardsmen even began forming up again, M1s ready, assuming further action may be necessary to handle the crowd. The students, who had just seen their friends and peers gunned down, were quickly turning into an angry mob. It wasn't until beloved geology professor Glenn Frank gave the students a tearful plea to disperse so as to avoid any further bloodshed did the crowd finally calm down and begin to leave. Upon learning that four students had been killed, the school administration decided to shut down the campus. It would remain closed for the rest of the spring semester. Meanwhile, anger over the shootings triggered a nationwide student strike that forced the shutdown of approximately 450 high schools, colleges, and universities. On May 9th, five days after the shootings, 100,000 people demonstrated in Washington, D.C. against the war and the killing of unarmed student protesters. Not all the responses were favorable for the students, however. A large portion of the Kent community, as well as people all across the country, felt the students received what they deserved. In fact, a nationwide Gallup poll showed that 58% of Americans blamed the students for the shooting, that they defied the law and appropriate action was taken. Many people, including numerous parents of Kent students, were reported to have said they wished that more were shot that day. Lies, rumors, and false reporting about the students, specifically the four killed, were reported in newspapers all over the country. Rumors like they all had venereal disease, were communists, and even that they were all drug addicts. Most of America didn't realize that Bill Schroeder was an active member of the ROTC or that Alison Krauss was a member of the Honors College. That information was widely ignored. (laughs) Of course it was. The same people that think that this was all, you know, this was good, more of them should have been shot, are the same ones that are crying over that woman that got herself killed rushing the Capitol building on (laughs) January 6th. 100%. More of that in our QAnon series. (laughs) You know, the, these people think that this is good, but nope. then it's the worst thing in the world that that woman got shot rushing. Secret right. If you're service. protesting for something we don't like, yeah. then we think it's fine that you should get shot. If right. we like your protest, then we're, we're fine. Yeah. I mean, my note to America is that people with STDs, people with, uh, was it communists? People, drug addiction. Drug addicts. They have the same exact rights to march as you do. No more, no less. Yeah. You're no better than them. They have the same exact rights. They can march as much as they want. And I don't care if you fucking like it or not. And I think it was done just to hurt their integrity, right? Like, oh, look at this person was exactly a piece right. of shit. Yeah. He was a communist. 
this person, uh, you know, they were just a drug addict. They didn't serve a good purpose to society. And, you know, it was just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll chill out on the January or on the <laughs> January 6th stuff. <laughs> Sandy Scheuer was, you know, known as just like the sweetest, nicest, most conservative, just family oriented, good girl. Jeff Miller would was described by friends as like the coolest guy. He never met a stranger. Everybody was his friend. Everyone loved him. He loved rock and roll music. He was just a good guy to know and someone you would be proud to call your friend. Mm -hmm. You know, and like we said, Allison Krauss, a member of the Honors College. Bill Schroeder. A she was walking to fucking class. Well, Allison Krauss was a part of the protest. Sandy Scheuer is the one. Whoever it was. Yeah, yeah, was walking, walking to class. class. And Bill Schroeder. 800 yards feet away or whatever it was. And it, I also read when Bill Schroeder transferred, the ROTC guy, when he transferred to Kent, he was studying psychology because he knew he was eventually going to be going to Vietnam, but he wanted to be a psychologist and he wanted to use that to help people, mm. to help soldiers, to help kind of get through the maybe PTSD of what it was like to be in war. So... The Nixon administration's response to this tragedy was seen as cold and callous at best. Just a few days prior to the shooting, Nixon was overheard calling campus anti-war protesters bums. During his condolence statement on the shootings, Nixon stated, quote, This should remind us all once again that when dissent turns to violence, it invites tragedy. Nixon was essentially placing blame on the students for their own deaths and injuries. So this brings us to the question that's been asked for the last 52 years. Why did the guardsmen decide to open fire on the unarmed students that day? Yes, they were tired. They didn't have much time to sleep. They were probably being overworked. They probably were a little scared, as a lot of them were young men, men who were not in a situation like this before. And they were ill-trained for this kind of environment. The most common answer offered by guardsmen is that they fired because they were in fear of their lives. Guardsmen testified before numerous investigation commissions including the Scranton Commission, named after its chairman, former Pres Pennsylvania Governor William Scranton. I thought it was named after a Scranton Strangler. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I believe the official name of that commission was like the President's Commission on Campus Unrest, something like that. Mm. Uh, and it just became, the nickname was the Scranton Commission because he was the chair of it. But uh, President Nixon set this this uh, committee up in response to the Kent State shootings Uh and uh, the Scranton Commission was asked to study the dissent disorder and violence breaking out on college and university campuses, particularly the national student strike that was then going on. Also, besides the shootings at Kent, other violent confrontations, uh, including one at Jackson State College in Mississippi shortly after Kent, had also incited public and administration concern. A couple of kids got killed there, too. I believe, I believe two black students were shot by police yep. during some protests. It was during this investigation, as well as in federal court, that the guardsmen said they felt the demonstrators were advancing on them in such a way as to pose a serious and immediate threat to the safety of the guard, and they therefore had to fire in self-defense. And to this day, even though the Scranton Commission, in its final findings, stated that the shootings at Kent State were, quote, unnecessary, unwarranted, and inexcusable, all federal, criminal, and civil trials have accepted the position of the guardsmen. In short, nobody has ever been charged with the shootings on campus that day. In a 1974 federal criminal trial, four years after the shootings, a district judge dismissed the case against eight guardsmen indicted by a federal grand jury, 
ruling at mid-trial, the government's case against the guardsmen was so weak that the defense did not have to present its case. In a much longer and more complex federal civil trial of 1975, a jury voted 9-3 to that none of the guardsmen were legally responsible for the shootings. The judgment on this verdict was actually later reversed by a court of appeals on the grounds that the federal trial judge had mishandled an out-of-court threat against a juror. But by this time, all focus was on a civil case, Krauss versus Rhodes. I actually also read that no federal civil trials, all federal civil trials or investigations were blocked by Richard Nixon until he started to feel like he was losing his power due to Watergate. And Mm. then he gave in and allowed them to start to happen. (laughs) Didn't Nixon meet with some of these people one night? He met too? with a few of the students. It's kind of a weird yeah. situation, and there was that. He met with students like protesters in Washington. Yeah, yeah, like like he, at four like, in the morning at the Lincoln Memorial. It was very strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like spoke with them, and yeah, just kind of like a real shitty way of trying to save face and right. make it look like I'm hearing you, I'm listening to you. Right. I believe he met with four of the students that were shot. Mm. Nothing came of it. Like they, right. you know, they're like, "Fuck this guy, fuck you, dick." <laughs> So the civil case, Krauss versus Rhodes, Arthur Krauss, father of the slain Allison Krauss, brought about a civil case against Governor Jim Rhodes, University President Robert White, and 27 guardsmen. Uh, President Robert White would later be dropped from the civil case. Krauss, the students injured, and the families of the three others killed that day were seeking $46, $46 million. In the end, the case ended up being settled out of court with a mere $675,000 being paid in total to the plaintiffs. Also, this was to be paid for by the state of Ohio. The defendants, who did not have to pay a dime out of pocket, agreed to state publicly that they regretted what had happened on May 4th, but they still refused to take any blame. When all was said and done, the families of each of the four students killed that day received a mere $15,000 paid for by the taxpayers of Ohio. Now, I did actually learn today on my visit to Kent that the families of those awarded the money and the students awarded the money agreed that the large portion of that 675,000 should be given the Dean Kaler, the student who was paralyzed from the waist down to help him pay for expenses and medical bills and such he would need throughout his life. That's really nice. Mm. I actually, they have at the museum there on campus, the actual, the official signed letter from the guardsmen and governor Rhodes stating their regret that this happened. That's pretty interesting to see, but took no blame. Yeah. Governor Rhodes got reelected to another four times to the governorship here in Ohio. Yeah, I believe he took a term off because he ran for senator and you couldn't do two consecutive. So then he left and then came back and was reelected. Several times. Again, he gained popularity from this. He surged in the Senate primaries. If there was another few days before the voting, he might have won. And then could have went on to become a U.S. senator if he would have won the general. So real quick, let's get into some of the biggest conspiracies and theories that are widely associated with the Kent State shootings. First is the Strub tape. Carrie Strub was a communication student at Kent during the time of the shootings. As he watched the issues escalate between the students and the National Guard, he held a microphone out his dorm window and managed to get 30 minutes of audio, including the shootings, Incidentally, Strub's tape was taken by the FBI and disappeared into 2007. At that time, Alan Conforna, one of the students shot and injured on May 4th, was still on a mission to get answers about that day, 
and he managed to find a static-filled copy of Strube's audio tape in a Yale library archive. Isn't that crazy? It's wild. Canforta maintains that an amplified version of the tape reveals the order to shoot. He states you can hear, quote, right here, get set, point, fire. A 2010 audio analysis of the Strub tape by nationally respected forensic audio experts concluded that the guardsmen were in fact given an order to fire. It's the only known recording to capture the events leading up to the shootings. According to the experts who listened to the enhanced recording, a male voice yells, guard. Then several seconds pass and you hear, all right, prepare to fire, get down. And then finally, guard, followed two seconds later by a long booming volley of gunshots. The entire spoken sequence lasts about 17 seconds. Now, the uh, audio is available on YouTube, or at least what they say is the enhanced audio. I've listened to it 10 times. I can't make anything out. You hear a bunch of crowd noise and then gunfire. Um, I think we have the enhanced audio. I've got the enhanced audio right here. We'll play it maybe twice. And if you hear it, you hear it. I don't hear anything in this. Experts say you can. Here we go. Yeah, play it one more time. Go ahead. I want to hear it one more time. See, that time I thought I could almost hear get down and guard. I heard the get down. But mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm looking for it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's just my mind telling me that's what I'm hearing. I feel like I definitely heard get down. I hear point. So if you, but if you Google strobe tape, strub tape, can't stay enhanced audio, it comes up on YouTube. Um, you just got to make sure it's the enhanced version. And it plays like the first minute 20 of the video is the regular audio. And then like at a minute, is that like a minute 21, mm-hmm. Dave? It goes to like the enhanced version. So check that out. I think the video is like two minutes in length, not even. I also like how the FBI just rolled in. They're like, that's ours now. <laughs> We're taking that off. you. Yeah. And right. maybe those will show up in a <laughs> Yale library one day. Yeah. <laughs> Further analysis of the audio tape revealed that what sounded like four pistol shots approximately 70 seconds before the National Guard opened fire. This leads to the story of Terry Norman, our third Terry in today's episode. (laughs) In short, Norman was a Kent State student who was an FBI informant and known to be carrying a pistol during the protest that weekend. Norman was seen by students taking pictures of protesters just prior to the shootings, and they approached and surrounded him. Fearing he was going to be attacked, Norman pulled his gun out. From here, the story gets really muddy, and the truth is not really known. No direct witnesses have come forth and stated that they saw Norman fire his gun, but some witnesses say that after Norman ran to safety behind police lines, one officer took his gun and admonished him for firing four rounds. Other witnesses say that officers took his gun, checked it, and confirmed no shots were fired. 
During investigations, some guardsmen claimed they opened fire because they believed there were student snipers in dorm windows. Could Norman's four shots have been what misled the guardsmen? Even so, his shots, if they happened, would have occurred a full minute before the National Guard opened fire on the unarmed students. In April 2012, the United States Department of Justice determined that there was, quote, insurmountable legal and evidentiary barriers to reopening the Kent case. Also in 2012, the FBI concluded that the Strube tape was inconclusive because what has been described as pistol shots may have been slamming doors and that voices heard were unintelligible. To close out, I wanted to share an interesting note I found during my research that really gives you a true sense of how the government felt about student protests during this time. In September of 1971, 16 months after the shootings, President Richard Nixon was briefed on the Attica prison riots. This was a situation where prisoners revolted to seek better living conditions and political rights, and in their words, quote, to be treated like men and not beasts. In the end, 33 inmates and 10 correctional officers were killed. Upon learning this and documented in the Nixon tapes, Nixon stated, quote, you know what I think? This might have a salutary effect. You know, they'll talk all about the radicals. You know what stops them? Kill a few. Remember Kent State? In May 2013, on the 43rd anniversary of the shootings, Kent State opened the May 4th Visitor Center. And in 2016, the site of the shootings was named a National Historic Landmark, hopefully per- forever preserving the memory and legacy of all those shot that day, including Jeff Miller, Allison Krauss, Bill Schroeder, and Sandy Scheuer, the four dead in Ohio. And that is it for us today. <laughs> good job, man. Thanks. This is yeah, a good episode. It's an outrageous story. How do you do these episodes without drinking? I am so part, and I guess you got your waters. I'm so parched. I'm going to have to suck down a few whiskeys now. I, I've been drinking Crown and ginger ale during this episode. Yeah. And earlier I poured the Crown part. And then I commented on something. And I forgot I put, didn't pour the ginger. <laughs> and I took a healthy swig. I'm like, oh, I wasn't expecting it. It was all straight whiskey. Well, it makes sense, too, because you've been getting angrier and angrier as the episode went on. And I know you would be anyways, but I like the like the whiskey has kind of fueled that a little bit. And I this love This is it. just such a ridiculous fucking... Just I, I know things happened and there were rioting and burnings and but just protesting is such a bedrock of of this country and just the overkill that was that was done here is absolutely outrageous. And firing into a crowd on a campus like this is fucking outrageous. If you like break down the timeline of the events, the the first riot where they were breaking windows of businesses and things like that. Like that's a major issue. And I don't blame those, Mm -hmm. uh, those business owners for protecting their business and standing up there with guns and stuff. Um, and the firefighter thing was really bad. Them attacking. I feel bad the for the firemen. Yeah, like, like that was. Really did they attack the firemen? Or they were, they, they were throwing rocks at the building. And, and they were cutting the, the hose, they were, right? They were so destroying we, the firemen's hoses. So they were, and they were. The firemen were getting no help from police. So they were preventing the firemen from putting out the fire. But were yes. they directly attacking no. the firemen? I think no. That's a different story. But as a fireman, what are you supposed to do then? Like you're not going to, you're not, you're not, it's not your job to fight back. You just say, all right, we're going to get yeah, out of here. We're out of here. Yeah. yeah. And that's what they did. But suggesting that they were attacking the firemen. Oh, I, I don't think, think which, I did though. Which, did I? Well, I think governor Rhodes. Oh, perhaps from his speech probably did. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. No, the firemen were not 
being attacked. Our hoses were destroyed with machetes and ice picks and knives and all that. But uh, and, that's you know, getting off maybe, the rails. Maybe they opinion. were getting hit with rocks that were being thrown at the building because they got close to the building. Yeah. But they were not being the, the target. They were not the targets of any attacks. I feel like just in my opinion, that's that's getting off the rails, cutting the. It is. Of course it is. The hose. Like Dave said earlier, that doesn't mean death penalty. No, absolutely not. But you're definitely, those protesters weren't completely innocent. No, and I don't know. I know I said it earlier, just a calm voice after that riot, after that the ROTC building was burnt, would have changed, I think, all of this. Instead of the governor going into business for himself with that quote, I think really fired everybody up on both sides. Well, and if we think about, there was that professor, Glenn Frank, who after the shooting managed to talk that thousand person group sitting in on the commons to go home. Please disperse. I don't want this to get worse. He was a beloved figure on campus. People, the students liked him. He gave a tearful plea. Please just let's go home. Let's end this. And the students listened to him. If that had happened two nights earlier. Yeah. Would we have had 13 shooting victims and four dead? That's right. I mean, you have to put it in the context of the times, too. Like, Bobby Kennedy had been killed. Dr. King had been killed. Malcolm X had been killed. Malcolm X had been killed. And you see these people trying to protest and their government clamping down and bayonetting them. And, yeah, you know, you feel like your voice just isn't going to be heard. And I think that escalates and turns into a riot sometimes. I mean, a great man once said, a riot is the language of the unheard. I think that's right. Dr. King said that. I think, I, I, you know, and then. I'm not excusing riots. I'm not excusing breaking personal property and burning down buildings. But sure. At some point when you suppress people's rights and their ability to protest, that, that's what's going to happen. And I think the biggest thing that I keep going back to is on that, that Monday, May 4th, there, that wasn't happening. It was just the rally. And then they were attacked with tear gas, told to disperse. That's right. Then got pissed and started fighting back, That's throwing right. the gas canisters, gas canisters back, throwing rocks. That, but that was it. And then open fired upon on their own campus. They hadn't destroyed any buildings. They hadn't, they hadn't been the aggressors going after the guard. And, I, you know, it all culminated to that moment where after all that shit happened Friday, Saturday, Sunday, now the National Guard almost kind of feels like they have to go on the offensive. And the argument that they were in fear for their lives is ridiculous. I think that was so, just the safe part. It's ridiculous. That was the safe part. It's what they got together and told each other after it happened, and that was the party line. You know, and I've seen stuff where they had went back and said that uh, the, the doors of Taylor Hall, which, are the, which were right next door to where the guardsmen opened fired, had doors that, like, they didn't have, like, they slammed shut. So that could have been what those four shots might have been that they blamed Terry Norman for. Mm-hmm. That there weren't sn- student snipers. Uh, it was just the door slamming shut. You know, stuff like that. It's like, what does that even mean? You, you thought there might be student snipers? So what, you were shooting above, the parking above lot? their head? Yeah. At, at, right. Well, no, the, Were you the, shooting into windows and dormitories? Like, what does that even mean? That's the other thing, saying that it was a scare tactic. Who the fuck shoots above someone's head as a scare tactic? Yeah, that's... Like, if you're going to do that, I guess you would shoot up into the air. 
the bullet's going to come down somewhere. It's going somewhere. But at least well, shoot in the was, air, not at people. Well, I think their thought was we weren't shooting straight up. We were shooting like 20 feet over their heads. Yeah, well, that's what going they somewhere. <laughs> what they Motherfucker sure. across sure. town. I'm just saying what they were, what, they, what I think yeah. what their mindset was. I think a lot of it, just in my opinion, has to do with the communist idea and the, just the anti-American thing. I don't know. That's just my opinion. I, I agree. Is that it was probably a big part of it. either a guard or a handful of guards took it into their own hands and said, fuck these people and fired or the, or the major gave them the, the order. I think that's true for maybe some of them. I, I also true. I, I really think some of those guardsmen were probably anti-war and that's why they joined the Ohio national guard. Yeah. That's so why I didn't have to get shipped over. And so they didn't, maybe hate commies. They probably didn't think anything about communists. They were just like, I don't want to go to war. So I'm going to go do this. And this is going to be my little side gig. And then now they're thrown in this situation where they have to go stop students that they're the same age as, and probably even agree with maybe mm. some, I'm saying some, I'm not saying all these guardsmen. Uh, some of these guardsmen were retired military vets that just were looking for an extra sure. role. Sure. Um, you probably had a, just a mix, uh, 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 a mix match of different. There's people. no one answer here. Sure. No, of course not. Yeah, but I think Sad. the stories are the agreed upon line that happened after the fact. And look, like I said earlier, I tried to present the information as best I could, being as unbiased as possible, given the facts we were presented. Of course, we have our own opinions going through it, and some of you may have different opinions. You know, as you read, as you hear the story. And that's fine. And, and to me, that would be the biggest compliment because that means we told a great story today. If we have people debating what yeah. they think happened here. Unlike some people in this country these days, I welcome very varying opinions. Sure. I like to hear opposing opinions than mine. Right. I tried to make this as fair as possible, but at the same time, in the end, facts are facts. And what we know is what we know. And I didn't, you know, ignore any facts to make this story seem one way or another. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, why I told the whole story of the weekend lead up to this, because the days prior, the students were being aggressive and criminal and engaging in riots on that Monday, May 4th. I don't believe they were. The other thing, too, I think, is the whole um, the whole thing with the weathermen. I think that probably plays a big part into why this escalated too. people oh, getting whipped up doubt. with all those Absolutely. rumors. Yeah. It's small town America getting whipped up that outside agitators are coming to murder your town and blow it up and yep. start it on fire and whatever else. I think that probably led to some of the people in the community saying, good, there probably should have been more of them shot. Absolutely. Like that. Oh, of course. I bet if your kid was one that was just walking to class, though, at Kent State and wasn't involved in this, I think you might feel differently. I read one Probably. eyewitness yeah. account, um, a girl, two things remind me about closing campus. If I don't get to that, uh, a girl came home after the shootings when they closed the campus down and walked in the door and her dad said something to the effect of, I wish they would have got more of them. And the daughter looked at him and goes, I would have been one more of them because I was protesting that day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, when they closed the campus after the shootings, they just shut it down and like students had hours to get out. Um, I read a report where people said they saw they were driving down 76, which is the highway from from us that would take you right into Kent. 
hundreds of students just lined up on the side of the road with signs indicating where they needed to go, hoping someone would take them. Sure. Because yeah. they, they had not made plans for travel. There was still a couple of weeks left of the school year. Right. And they were just forced out, just kind of roaming down the road with whatever belongings they had trying to, to get home. Mm. Just crazy and very irresponsible to do and unsafe. You know, that could have easily led, you know, that would have been a, a buffet for an Ed Kemper or, you know, any of these serial killers, yeah. all right. these young college students just roaming down the side of a highway. It's a great point. So anyways. Well, good job, Mike. Very entertaining. Yeah. Hey, very uh, informative. I was very nervous coming into this episode. The most nervous I've ever been with recording because really? I wanted it to go well. And like I said, I didn't feel like I had a handle on the outline like I have for like the Benoit episode or the Garfield episode or even the uh, the Foxcatcher episodes that I've done. I just feel like I didn't have a handle on this episode. So I hope people enjoyed it and I hope it made sense and flowed well. What's well, more open to opinion? Sure. I get that. Uh, I just meant I didn't feel comfortable with the outline. I don't know if that makes sense. Anyways. I, I thought the outline was very... Yeah. Uh, informative and thorough thank you and it sounds like i'm fishing for compliments which is not what i'm doing i'm just telling you my thought coming in as to why i was so fucking nervous tonight and it's a different kind of episode because it's open to a lot of interpretation and a lot of opinions and And i like that and i hope we get that because to me that would be a huge compliment if someone learns this story if if two people learn this story from our episode and one of them goes oh yeah that was fucked up those students shouldn't have been killed and someone else goes oh no the national guard was right I think I did a damn good job. Yeah, telling the story. Anyways, it's good. Good show. So I don't. I don't know. We kind of gave our final thoughts, right? And we got anything else? Anything else to talk about with this one? Nah, it's it's walking a fine line because I have some thoughts that I'm just going to keep to myself. <laughs> You've already been kind of spilling a little bit there, pal. <laughs> I know. I'm just going to keep the rest of myself. Well, that, you, just you're that the whole, editor of the show, so that that double speak or not double speak, but that double standard. Yeah, and just the hypocrisy of people's opinion that are in favor of this is really fucking irritating and it's hard not to kind of go down that road but um i would agree with you and again i think the reason why we chose to do this one is because it was something that was 52 years ago you know we're still doing the same shit today though i'm not disagreeing i'm just saying you know we might not be covering uh January 6th anytime <laughs> no. but something like this 52 yeah. years removed you know maybe we can talk about a little <laughs> bit more and and have fun with the episode I'll just say that I hear these same arguments today when unarmed black men get shot dead in the streets so you know what's interesting the um that they f- cops feared for their lives and I believe the group on at, on Kent at this time was the black united students BUS was their abbreviation when all of this started, even on that Friday, they were told, do not get a, a part of this because they're engaging in criminal behavior. And when guns are involved, the black students are the first one shot. And so the, the, the black students and the black groups and even the black anti-war protesters did not take part in a lot of this Smart. because they were told by their leaders on campus, do not do it because when guns get involved, you are the first one shot. Uh, not wrong at all. Very smart. Well, we talked about what happened at, what Jackson State. You know, a couple of weeks after, mm-hmm. two black students were shot. So that they they were not a part of a lot of this because of what you know, kind of what you alluded to, Dave. I, I, I 
I just mean to say, I hear this same argument today. I fear for my life, you know. Well, like I said earlier. The black guy was pulling a fucking cell phone out of his pocket, and they fear for their life. Here in in Cleveland, Tamir Rice was playing with a a fucking pellet gun, and the cops pulled up and shot him in a second and a half because they fear for their life. So, you know, some things stay the same. In this episode, Sandy Scheuer was walking to class. So imagine if a black person was just present. Yeah. Oh, like if so. whoever agrees with the fact that they should have been shot has no room to complain about that woman that was shot and killed on January 6th rushing the secret service. Um no. That's my final thought on You were on committing that. insurrection and uh invading the US Capitol. That's exactly what you would expect to happen. Not when you're protesting Not when unarmed. you're protesting unarmed on a college campus. And again, two of those killed were not protesting. Or walking to class. How dare three you Three football fields away on a college campus. Uh, yeah. So clearly we will not be doing a January 6th show anytime soon. Uh, no. Or a QAnon one. Um, <laughs> but I hope this was informative and people enjoyed it. So, all right. We got patron shout outs. A special shout out to Camila Venegas Schmuff. And new patrons, Andrew Muscuzzi. Oh, Muscuzzi, Muscuzzi. <laughs> Brooke Lazier, Julia Dax, 137. Hope Lysky, Jay Jansen, Amber Monique, Barry Big Schlong Burrito, <laughs> Mo Sports Gal Junkie, Aaron Gamble, Zach T, Becca Emerson, Buster Cherry, <laughs> Mikachu. <laughs> Mandy MD. Was that you, Dave? That was you. What? Buster chair. Come on. <laughs> I tried to hide it in there. Jussie. Fucking bastards. <laughs> Summer Cavender. Ashley Snipes. Chloe Wolf. Blue Waffle Eating Champion. Oh, no. Nope. nope. <laughs> Cameron Hubbard. Future Cucks of Canada. Come cannon relief of the seaman fleet. <laughs> Does he report to the come commander as I well? Think probably. Okay. There's like a whole military force forming yeah, over here. Right. Brad and Donna Shepard, James Meltzer the third, the fourth, oh. Anne Clinton Vetford, Josh Wilson, Zoe Langlois, Irvin Lopez, Leonard Nobles, Crab Johnson, Blake Casey, Matt Cazera. Chad White, Silver Fox, Stu Pit Asshole. <laughs> I had to read that one for a minute. <laughs> Stephanie Gordon, I Cuck Speedway Raccoons. God to oh, him. That sounds Jeez. fun. <laughs> Shelly Ramsey, Ashley B, Evan McPhail, Miss Fire 54, Uncle Randy's Rendezvous, Allison Halliwell, Jeff the Real Talking Mongoose. I don't believe that. Ian, why just suck my balls? <laughs> Liz Crone, Sackman Ball Scholar. <laughs> Manuel Covarubius. Morgan Mattingly. Rochelle. Austin Bullock. Jen Miller. Chloe Bowman. Letitia Wiggins. David White. Jay Ryder. Here you go, Dave. K. 
Kara challenges Amy and Samantha to a triple threat ladder match for the title of Who Loves Dave Moore. Uh oh. Oh, is that the whole Patreon God name? Damn, yeah. But I expect the joke last week. We're gonna hang Dave from a, a yeah. the, the rafters. He's gonna be chilling there, and they have to climb the ladder and grab him, and he they win triple threat match. All right, Ian and I are commentate. Sounds good. <laughs> Gabe loves Ashton. Adam Haddock love Ian's lullaby voice. Morbid bitches, dummy thick Elmo, mingle mangle Mengala. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jonathan Galafate or Galafate. I'm your Hucklebear. Arthur M. Julia Hinkle. Angie Baldwin. Tyler Mole. Carly Nemo. Kendall Boyer. Mike Roush. Thank you all very much. We are at patreon.com slash necronomapod. For iTunes, I have one for your boys. Monte Carlo 2202. Ari Garrickser. And slow yellow five zero. Thank you guys for the awesome mm. reviews. Dave, you got anything from the international board? I do. First, I'd just like to say I'm looking forward to the Kara, Amy, Samantha triple threat triple threat, threat match. match. Like that's gonna be a good time. Can't wait to watch. Nice. <laughs> right, from the international, I, I hope one of them is a swanton bomb <laughs> off the ladder through the other two who are laying on tables. That'd and if sweet. the tables happen to be on fire with thumbtacks under them, then that's even better. <laughs> I have Felicity1332 from Great Britain. I have Jordan Lyd, 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 Jordan Lyd from Great Britain. I have Huckleberry Wynn from Canada. And that's it. Thank you very much to our foreign, uh, foreign listeners. Hell yeah. Finally, we're getting back to you guys. All right, we good? Anything else? I think I'm good. No, that's uh, quite an episode. I'm a little riled up. I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. Now you need a cool down beer? Something happened 50 years ago, but uh, <laughs> you know. We're going to be sitting here just cooling down, drinking, angrily looking at the wall. Look, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I see uh, hints of this today. So, You know the funny thing about stuff staying the same is when I listen to the Coast to Coast, the Art Bell episodes that I have on my computer, not the ones from the app, mm. but the computer ones still have like a lot of the news stuff in there. Same shit. You could just, you know, switch out some names, but there's like when he's talking about healthcare issues and stuff. And like, it, this yeah. is literally the same exact thing that's happening back sure. in 1993 is yeah. happening today. Yeah. You just change out some of the names. Oh, no, I have no doubt about it. And then some of the names are actually still active in politics, which is like, motherfucker, <laughs> like when are you going to retire? Sunset these motherfuckers, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't have much hope for this world, but, what an uplifting uh, thought to leave us all on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's all I got. It's going to be some uh, sad drinking tonight, huh? I'm going to go home and cool down with some wrestling. There you go. <laughs> we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at Necronomapod, Amazon.com. Search Necronomapod for all of our latest merch, Patreon.com slash Necronomapod uh, for all of the bonus content. And I think I said it all right. I think so. You did great. Sounds like it. Pretty good. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. Rioting. The unbeatable high. Adrenaline shoots your name.